We would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of this land. We pay our respect to elders past and present, to the future generations keeping the songlines alive, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening. I'm Lauren Taylor. And I'm Simon Winkler. You're listening to City Central by Red Bull. We're passionate music fans and broadcasters based in Melbourne. Over six episodes, we look into the past, present and future of this global music city and meet a small selection of artists, labels, collectives and pioneers making Melbourne such a dynamic place. We'll be asking the questions, who are the people and what are the places that form a strong musical community? How do you create space for a safer, more inclusive scene? And how do we acknowledge a country's history in music? Forget about what's on your phone and what you know and what you've heard. Let the robots do it. We can enjoy it forever. And then let's just transcend genre and make something unimaginable, something that you couldn't even conceive of. That's Robin Fox, co-founder alongside Byron Scullin of MESS, Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio. It's a special place, home to one of the world's most comprehensive synthesizer collections. We went to visit them in North Melbourne to ask what the future sounds like. My name's Byron Scullin, I'm one of the directors of MESS. I'm Robin Fox, I'm the other director at MESS. So what we're in is we're in a kind of underground bunker space that we found through an excellent program run by the City of Melbourne called Creative Spaces. And we're in underneath the meat market in North Melbourne. And uh, what we have is a whole collection of vintage synthesizers. In the studio at the moment, there's probably a couple of hundred, but uh, that only represents less than a third of the total collection that we have here at MESS that we rotate in and out of this space. And it's not like a, it's more like a workshop, not really like a recording studio. And uh, we set it up in such a way that people can come in here and plonk their laptops and sound cards down on the tables and grab a synth and put headphones on and work away on these machines on whatever various projects they've got going. What we're trying to do is give everybody access to the complete history of electronic music in instrumental form, which is sort of grandiose claim, but it's basically what we're trying to do. MESS is a not-for-profit organisation so we're not trying to make money here. We're trying to actually provide something for the community that is not really available in this form in many other places in the world. I mean, things are starting to happen in, in this way. But what's interesting about electronic music and what we talk about often is the fact that a lot of the machines that we have here aren't really that old in historical terms. But a lot of the instruments that we have here you will find under glass in museums, untouched and unheard, unfortunately. So uh, the point of, of MESS and the significance of MESS is that it's a place where literally anybody can come in and get their hands on a basically priceless uh, <laughs> antique synthesizer and, and make a track. And, and we really do believe that um, creativity is something that everybody can and should be involved in as well. For me personally, I find that the the way the music industry manifests these days and it has for many, many years kind of promotes a, an ethereal sort of elitist sense of songwriting and music making and sound making is really just for an elite few people touched by God or something absurd like that and it's just not the case and, and I think that um, a lot of people come in here and they sit in front of a, you know, a drum machine and they start making some things and they sort of go, you know, oh, so I can do this, right? And say, of course you can, you know, that this is exactly what the people who you admire are doing. They're sitting in front of this drum machine with the same, you know, uh, 16 steps and the same parameters and they just make, 
music. It's not. It's not. I, I think we're trying to demystify a lot of those processes here at Mess and just say everyone can do this and it's therapeutic and fun. Like making bangers is so fun. Like it's just fun, you know. This desire to create access for everyone is at the heart of everything Mess does. It's about finding those people who maybe don't have immediate access to like these instruments or to this history and then just giving it to them, you know, like and just going, okay, great. You like, we, we don't have a program for a particular group inside the community. Great. Let's make a program. Let's make it cheap. Let's make it accessible. Let's find people in there and then bring them in here and just allow them to have that experience. Because ultimately for us, what that comes down to is that the more diverse people we have making electronic music, the more diverse electronic music we'll have and the more rich the kind of landscape of sound will be around us. Can you tell us a bit more about, I know you've been running specific workshops for women, trans, gender non-conforming people as well. How's that been going? That's been great to see. It's been amazing, that program, and uh, it's a real testament to Emma Fox who uh, takes the takes the lead on, on those programs, um, that they are so successful. We were very conscious when we started MESS that it would be well, we didn't really know what was going to happen, but we knew that we knew what could happen, and that is, th- this could easily become a bro den of just you know dudes uh, patching synths and talking shop, and and it, it it was just an awful, it was like a nightmare to me. So, yeah, so it's completely boring. It's like, completely boring. Yeah. And so what we did, um, we put the call out to women first to join. We didn't know what the membership uptake would be like. What happened was that I was still quite disappointed with the with the disparity with the the spread in the memberships that came in i was talking to emma fox about it and she said you have to understand that there's a huge difference between a dude walking up here and a woman walking up here and what you don't understand is that that woman's done six months of research before coming here and this is an incredibly intimidating place whether you think it is or not and that was kind of a wake-up call to me and she said you need to invite women into this space and you need to make it a safe place to come and you need to you know, be very proactive. And I said, okay, well, you know, you run it. <laughs> and, and she has, and she's done a really brilliant job. And I think that we're still, you know, very much, uh, there's a lot of work to do in all areas of, of access and inclusivity. And uh, we're very conscious that it's easy to pay lip service to it. It's easy to talk about it. It's a much, it's a much different thing to actually enact it in a, in a real way. And that's, uh, that's a challenge that we should all be facing at the moment, I think. MESS is open to all and regularly extends invitations to musicians from around the world. Byron tells us more about the collection and how it's become an internationally recognised centre for sound exploration. Sometimes these international artists, it's kind of funny because they come and uh, we had Alessandro Cortini come uh, as well and he has a phenomenal synth collection. So sometimes you get these people who walk in and it's actually hard to direct them to something that they don't either have or <laughs> have used before. But what we what we do have at MESS is this um, incredible uh, proto EMS machine. So the EMS of VCS3 is one of the most iconic synths ever. It's that sort of matrix pin bay, looks like Battleship. They call it the Doctor Who synth for those who are curious about it but there was a there was a vcs1 and only three of these were made and we have one here and so it's like a museum piece like these things are virtually impossible to get your hands on so of course when alessandro came in i sort of took him through the collection and he kind of shrugged at a lot of stuff like yeah 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 yeah." and then i showed him the vcs1 he's like holy shit okay well he sat down and spent some time with that and so you know it's it's funny just having some of these sort of particularly the electronic music aficionados in here it sort of becomes a bit of a 
a bit of a struggle to get them excited about things, but, but the collection is deep. It's very deep. One thing that was particularly interesting that's in here is the Surge paper face. That instrument is physically very large, but also it's probably everybody's nightmare synth in terms of the fact that I think people find synthesizers pretty impenetrable at the best of times, like cables and wires and stuff going everywhere. And this is almost like the next level of that, where it's almost like it's a form of like hieroglyphs that you have to sort of interpret to figure out what's going on. But part of the thing that's really interesting and the reason why I like that synth a lot is because sometimes you're doing things you don't kind of actually quite know what you're doing and so strange things occur and accidents happen but then interesting sounds occur out of that and I think that sort of process of discovery is um, a huge part of like what makes electronic music so interesting. That's It's kind of a strange form of music in some ways in that entire ideas come from single sounds. Like I think a lot of music isn't necessarily made here with the intent, like people don't people come in and sometimes it's a bit of a blank slate and then they hear a sound and that suddenly suggests an entire world, another sound that could come and another sound that could come. And so this sort of process of, I guess, like playing with the instruments, I mean, I still think that is very common to music, like people do improvise and ideas come out of it, but there's something sort of almost, I don't know, a bit epic in some strange way or absurd about electronic music that just really suggests very left field things that maybe you wouldn't get from a traditional musical instrument. And so uh, the surge for me like represents in some ways that sort of crazy sort of path of experimentation and discovery and absurdity. It's kind of a bit ridiculous as well. Um, and I think that's why I really like it. And it's also, I think it's, it's very rare to be able to play one of these instruments. So um, that, that is also kind of appealing, I guess. Electronic music is like historically speaking, a relatively young genre, if you like, or form. But at the same time, a lot of the techniques are pretty well established now and and what happens is you know endless new controllers come out new you know so we start to sort of reinvent the wheel all the time and what i'm finding really interesting at the moment is um i've been thinking and reading a lot sort of about um ai and transhumanism with other projects that i'm working on at the moment and and what i find really hilarious musically is that there are these ai sites now that so there are bots that generate um music and there's a there's a site where you can go to where there's an ai that's generating speed metal for example 24 hours a day all the time and the thing is it's fucking great like if you like speed metal you can listen to that and it's awesome it's super complex super tight sounds like it's being played by a bunch of you know whoever plays speed metal and it's kind of um you know, it's really amazing. You know, you can do it for particular genres of um, dance music as well, EDM. And people are sort of up in arms and saying, oh, no, it's like the death of music. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's what we need to do now is we need to transcend genre. We need to forget about that stuff. Like, that's amazing. It means it's taken care of, right? That genre is taken care of. It's packaged up. It's a, it's a formula. It's repeatable. It's fine. <laughs> Let the robots do it. We can enjoy it forever. And then let's just transcend genre and make something unimaginable, something that you couldn't even conceive of, you know. And there was, I recently saw an article where there was a club somewhere who was starting a voting system for what the DJ should play next. So everyone pulls out their phones and decides on the next track. And I think that's an absolute travesty of a direction for music to go in. It's like, like why would you do that? Why would you go out to have an experience that you've just selected on your phone like an Uber Eat, you know? It's just, it, to me, it's like, 
It's a repulsive <laughs> idea. And Could so you imagine like the pub rock equivalent of that? It'd just be like K-San for like yeah, yeah. all night long. Forever. You know? Forever. It's like, yeah, know? exactly. Like echoing, I can understand how atrocious that would be. Echoing into eternity, exactly. And so this <laughs> and so this idea that that's somehow a direction we should be going and I think is terrible. We should be, and, and, and that made me think of that again as well. It's like forget about what's on your phone and what you know and what you've heard. Transcend genre but also get yourself out into an experience that's something that you – that you haven't had before, something you haven't heard before. I mean, this is what's interesting. And, 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 you know, theoretically, with all the machines we have here at MESS, like mathematically, we should be able to make every single imaginable sound right, <laughs> with what we have here. So, what, you know, let's, let's work on that, you know. <laughs> let's work on that potential. Yeah. Let's, let's harness that potential, you know. I just naturally fell in love with technology. I didn't think of it as a scary thing or something daunting. I I was just, it was warm and friendly, and I loved it. Suzanne Chiani, US Grammy-nominated composer, pioneering sound designer, lecturer, and record label executive, returns to Melbourne this year for Red Bull Music Festival. Her work with synths is hugely influential across creative and commercial fields. Well, I'm a huge fan of mess because, you know, I started out in such a situation, a public access electronic music, you know, studio. It was the, uh, the extension of existence of the San Francisco Tape Music Center. And when I was a young student, I was a graduate student in Hungary for any contact that I could find with these instruments, I could go there. And nobody went there. I mean, this was not a popular thing to do. So I pretty much had it to myself. And technically, I was supposed to pay $5 an hour, but uh, nobody ever collected it. I'm a big fan of that model of creating access to for people to play instruments. I was in Melbourne and I met Byron, and he took me through the facility. I loved the way it was set up, that students could just come in uh, and put on headphones and work in their own private space. It's exceptionally important to have these facilities because when I started, you know, there were two instruments. You could work your way, you know, towards one of them. Today, there are you know, thousands of modules, and how can you get the experience? And there are historic instruments that are very, very important to to understand. And there's no possibility, really, of owning all of this, you know, vast reservoir of electronic instrument. And so, you know, I see young kids uh, who are passionate about this working night and day uh, to, you know, get the money to buy their modules, to build their systems. It can take them a year or two years. And I admire that because that's what I did. I said, I need this. I'm going to figure out how to get it. I'm going to make money. I'm going to do it. But I think that uh, it's unrealistic as an approach to simply buy your way in to this modular world because there are too many modules and you need to have hands-on experience uh, with, with so many instruments. 
So it's, it's absolutely critical. And I wish there were more facilities like this. MESS is important because it's very broad-based in terms of who gets to use it. You touched upon this in your earlier answer, the idea of access to music and musical instruments that MESS offers. One subject that we're addressing in this podcast series is inclusivity and equality in music. And certainly in the documentary, A Life in Waves, we heard about the discrimination that you faced when you studied music composition as a graduate student at Berkeley in the late 1960s. We were wondering if you might be able to share a little bit with us about that experience at the time. Well, the things that I remember were a sense of having being belittled and pushed aside. I mean, I wanted to study conducting because I felt that was a really important part of being a composer. I worked so hard at it, and I remember my first experience and I got up, I was conducting a piece by Mozart. I was thrilled with what I had done. And my professor said, you know, please step down. Uh, you know that women really have no place on the podium. And I, I was flabbergasted. You know, I, I always think that part of my advantage as a woman really was that nothing was expected of me. She's not supposed to be a professional, and she's not supposed to have ambitions. And that kind of left me free. Freedom is very important. Another interesting episode that I had there was this realization that the women were just outnumbered. And they're all discussing, what can we do? What is wrong? Why aren't there any women in our classes? And truly, there would be one woman for every 12 guys. And I'm sitting there. I'm the only woman in the room. And I said, look, look at this room. This is the message you're sending. This is the representation you're demonstrating. I said, you need to have women in your faculty, you know, in the higher levels of visibility in your school and they've done that and what they asked me to do was to teach an all-female class and at first I thought oh my gosh that's you know prejudice we're we're barring men like how can we do that um, but it was fascinating because the women you know here I am thinking oh I have to impart you know, knowledge and techniques and, you know, do all this stuff. And the first session was just a pure emotional dumping of all of their concerns, which I, you know, we suspected, but nobody talked about them. So the girls have, they're saying all kinds of things that, you know, like, well, when we're two on a machine and and we're playing the synth and I reach for a knob and he'll reach over and take that knob and say, here, let me, let me show you or let me do it or, you know, whatever it is, this kind of undermining of the, the presence of the woman. It's a subtle thing and the men don't mean to belittle them. They're just, they don't know the effect it's having. 
We also asked Suzanne Chiani to share what she's teaching and learning from her classes of new students and the ideas they're exploring. Right now I give the kids big credit for turning backwards and stopping the, you know, the um, unending march forward of digital and looking at, you know, the human experience in all of this phenomenon. You know, is it enough just to be holding a mouse? You know, I'm happy that we're looking at electronic music as a non-keyboard instrument, but I hope that the instrument designers really uh, get down to basics the way Buchla did. You know, what, what is a human hand? What's the size of a hand? What's the length of an arm? What's the, you know, I mean, he designed his instruments to be interactive with people. And in, and in a sense, by doing that, he humanized his own instrument. When you play a bukla, you know, it talks back to you. It plays with you. Part of my embracing of this medium was that it did give me control over my own compositional life. And that's true to this day. And that's true for all the kids who want to interact with these instruments. They, they are in control. They have the freedom to express themselves and to create uh, whatever they want. And there are no rules. You know, technology is so freeing because it's, it's a fluid world. There's no there there. It's always changing. You can't put it in a box. On the other hand, I do think that there are, you know, because electronic music is, is really an evolved uh, form now. You know, it's been around for, the concepts have been around for over 100 years, and the, the reality has been around for over 50 years. And so we are crystallizing some techniques and approaches to this medium that is open. It's open. Suzanne Chiani is an inspiration to many around the world, including Becky Freeman, a.k.a. Sui Chen. The Melbourne-based artist and Red Bull Music Academy alumni cites Suzanne Chiani in the album notes to her latest record, Losing Linda. We visited Sui Chen in her Brunswick studio to discuss the influence of Suzanne's work and ideas on her own. And first discovered her music um, and just thought of it as music and didn't delve deeper until people were like, oh my God, have you watched a documentary? Or, I mean, I had actually watched snippets of Suzanne Chiani's like appearances on like Letterman, I think there's a clip. And that blew me away. In a similar way, Laurie Anderson kind of, I think those two people just, I guess they have such a big canon of work um, that you may or may not be aware of. More so significantly like, doing that at the time that they were forging careers in the music industry and or art community. Yeah, I think it's so awesome. I can't even imagine what it would have been like in that in that kind of time and the things that I'm talking about like were the, the own limits of my imagination. I didn't see people, you know, behind the mixing desks, so I thought I can't do it, but you know, clearly some people just like 
no, nope, I'm going to do it, you know, and they, they forge on or they find the right, the right space or work to be able to further their skills in that kind of way. So I often watch interviews, actually. It's not just the music or output. I try and find as many interviews I, as I can with these kind of role models. It's really inspiring to hear them talk in, in later career too and look back on their body of work. And I think that's the big takeaway I get from, from having those role models is that I'm going to be doing this for a really long time. So I don't need to express everything in this one project or this one piece. I can like just f- focus on this idea and put those other ideas on the shelf. Like maybe I'll come back to them. Yeah, it's helped me to like just not care as much about perfection. I'm a, a lot more casual and patient and, you know, accepting of the things that I'm making as, as being worthy of releasing in their purest incarnations as not laboring over stuff and just being confident. I think you look at, you look to those two people and it inspires me to just be confident and like not worry about what other people think. Yeah, I think role models are really important, particularly yeah, in in technical roles as well. Like it's not so scary as people think. It took me a long time to start producing and engineering my own recordings. Um, even though I was already doing it, I wasn't prepared to call myself like an engineer. And I, I still kind of wouldn't necessarily unless that was specifically my role. But it's certainly something that I'm doing all the time, um, recording at a quality that I could mix and then release. That's something that I've done for a little while now. But I think that I didn't really see any, um, I didn't really have many female role models, I guess, in that engineering role growing up. I always, There was this thought of like, oh, you need to go into a producer and you just would assume that that producer would be male, I guess. Um, it just felt like that in my early 20s and that, I would need some kind of person being like, yeah, that's good. You know, like that's like this disapproval thing. That's not necessarily what people were saying to me. Like I was getting a lot of encouragement, particularly from my brother and their friends of, you can do this, Becky, you can, you can do this yourself. Um, so it was maybe I was like my own, it was more of an issue internally to get over. And it was really, um, I think hearing a lot of stories um, at the Red Bull Music Academy hearing a cross-section of all different kinds of musicians, composers from more classical background and then some from a very more like DIY kind of scene and then also the participants involved in hearing. That that was like mind-blowing for me. I was like, oh my gosh, so you just have your own thing. Seeing the cross-section of people doing it was just so encouraging and I think that was one of the biggest takeaways from from that experience was that like don't question so much if you're doing it and it's working for you then that's the right thing to do whereas I would be like I know I have to do it at this certain quality and you know and so I think from there I started to see a lot more diversity and um and more perspectives diversity across the kind of perspectives as well so not just beyond beyond gender kind of diversity and you know maybe it was coming from more like queer academic musicians who are making using sound in a different way and and I was really really inspired by that I think um, Cozy Fanny Tudi spoke at the one I had the most incredible people speaking but it was just quite mind-blowing and then I also connected with a lot of people there so I kind of brought that back and that's why I wanted to come back and start afresh and in, in a new city um, with a new music sound and 
I think from there I had that confidence. You've been listening to City Central by Red Bull. In our sixth and final episode, we stop and reflect on one central question. What are the constants of a strong music city? City Central was created by Lauren Taylor and Simon Winkler with additional production assistance by Matthew Wilson and music by Andrush.